You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. But who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? For even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Good morning. Did you guys notice some confusing, weird verses in there? Maybe you guys discussed them at small group this week. I'm looking forward to getting into the confusingness and the controversy. It's turning out to be um, a a fun weekend for me. I saw Black Panther yesterday. Yeah. Actually, there's an up-and-coming podcast, Film Lovers Podcast, found at filmloverspodcast.com that will be discussing this film if you want some amazing insights into that. One second. Really thought Hannah and I would have the same height for this, but didn't work out. Okay, so um, going into this week, Russ was giving me some some coaching points on teaching this morning. He's, if you guys didn't know, with, with Fred on sabbatical, Russ and Wayne are overseeing our teaching series together, teaching team together. And he said, Casey, I really want you to, there's two Casey's that we can experience sometimes. There's history teacher Casey, and then there's podcast Casey, um, filmloverspodcast.com. And what I really want you to do is to channel Podcast Casey this morning. And so I wanted to share that with you guys and assure you that I will, I'll do the best I can. So this morning, we're going to continue on our series in First Peter called Standing Firm in Your Faith. 
And you guys heard the passage that Hannah read before I came up here, 1 Peter 3, 8 through 22. She did a good job, by the way, didn't she? Reminds me of the podcast we're recording, filmloverspodcast.com. You may, you may remember from pe- previous messages that Peter is writing this letter to communities of faith in, um, in the first century in the Roman Empire in a region called Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And Russ made a great map in his um, first message on this series that I'm going to use. So you'll notice, that, so it's the Roman Empire. He's got Rome circled on the... Um, on the west side of the map. If you don't know geography, that's on the left side. And then below that, we have George Lucas Peter, um, which that was Russ's joke. He gets credit for that. And then if you follow the line and then the arrow, you see modern-day Turkey, which is Asia Minor. And I'm also going to steal the timeline that he shared with me as well. This letter, was, we think, was written in the early 60s. Um, which is about 30 years after the death, and resur- or the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we think it's a couple of years before Peter is executed by the Roman authorities during the persecutions under Nero. This first century and um, the decades after that is a period of particular peace and prosperity for the Roman Empire. It's often referred to as Pax Romana. Um, and so it's a great period for the Romans but it's not necessarily an easy time for the early church, for the Christian communities. After um, the death and resurrection of Christ, and as the church is forming, these communities start popping up all over the Roman Empire, and they seem kind of peculiar to the people around them. For instance, um, they noticed that the people in these churches would sometimes marry the very people that they would call brothers and sisters, and they would wonder, are these people incestuous? Also, they would hear about these people eating the flesh and drinking the blood of their leader, Jesus Christ, and they wondered, are they cannibals? This is weird. But the thing that would really get the Christian communities in trouble, actually, is um, their worship. they worshiped Yahweh exclusively. They worshiped one God exclusively. And the, the Roman Empire would draw a line right there because they wanted everyone in the empire to worship the emperor. And don't get me wrong, the Roman Empire was actually pretty diverse. And so we live in a diverse world where pluralism, where all these different cultures and belief systems are navigating the same space. And the Roman Empire was pretty similar. They would conquer people aggressively. And then once those people would submit to Roman authority, then they would, um, once those people would submit to Roman authority, then they would allow them to practice their cultures and their religions and their faiths and beliefs which was a source of strength for the Roman Empire um, because it increased the loyalty of people because they could could be themselves in the Roman Empire. But it caused problems for the Jews and for the Christians because part of them living out their beliefs and their culture was exclusively worshiping Yahweh. And those who were faithful to their beliefs in, um, in Judaism and Christianity refused to worship the emperor, and that actually led to persecutions. And the most famous ones, we've, um, the 
maybe the most famous persecution is under Nero. Russ and others talked about it in previous messages. But for the first few centuries of the Roman Empire, there's going to be recurring persecutions depending on the emperor until the early 4th century when Constantine converts to Christianity. So this is the context of the Christian church that Peter is writing to in Asia Minor. These we, um, we don't know exactly how these communities were being treated in Asia Minor, but as I mentioned, they were seen as peculiar, weird, and maybe may, may have been marginalized as a result. And so these are some of the things that Peter's addressing in this, in this book. If you remember last week, Nick gave us kind of the broad strokes of the book. He says the first chapter or two deals with the identity of the Christian church as communities of followers of Christ. If we believe that Christ was the Messiah and he was, um, he was killed and he was resurrected, what does that mean for who we are as the people of God? And so Peter's addressing that early in the book, and then the rest of the book is if that's our identity, then what does that mean for how we live, as how we function as a community? How do we do this practically? Nick started us off in that section last week, and I'm going to continue um, in that section this morning. A major theme in First Peter is how do we be a beautiful and provocative community in the midst of a, a, a pagan culture? And that's the theme that Peter starts off with in the passage I'm going to cover this morning. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Um, if you have your Bibles with you or want to swipe there, or if you just want to follow along, I'll have the slides behind me. Peter says, Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Peter is saying that no matter what, what your circumstances are, this is how we're to behave as the people of God. Now, Matt, look at this, these verses and the things that Peter's describing here. If a community of people behave this way, they would be beautiful and provocative to the people around them, wouldn't they? When I was reading this, I was thinking back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, um, Sermon on the Mount um, described in Matthew 5, where Jesus says that we should be a city on a hill in salt and light. And what Peter's doing here is he's giving us practicals like, this is what you do to be salt and light. This is what it looks like. This is our calling as the church, what Peter's describing. And so I think it's good for us as I'm talking about it this morning, you guys are reading it and reflecting on it. For us, Alina, I'd like to, to reflect on how do we do it, these things as a church? How are we doing living up to this calling? Are we unified, sympathetic? Are we loving with one another? Are we compassionate and humble? When people sin against us, how do we respond? Do we respond in sin in return? Do we respond in kind, or do we respond with goodness and blessing? This is what we're called to, and this is what we should strive to be, not in our own power, but as we as individuals um, depend on the Holy Spirit to shape us, and we come together in the name of Jesus, and the Spirit is there, and the, the Holy Spirit shaping our communities. This is our calling. This is what the kinds of communities we should be. 
And then Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount, that same passage where he talks about being salt and light, and he says that the world may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Wouldn't that be amazing if the Spirit made us loving, dynamic, Spirit-filled communities, and the people around us saw that, and they wanted to know more about it. They wanted to be part of that, and so they joined us, and they encountered the gospel, and they become, they become Christians, and they join our community as a result of that, and their lives are changed. I'd love to see that happen in our midst. Let's keep going. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. Quick note about these, these verses here, 10, 11, and 12. Peter's quoting an Old Testament passage, Psalm 34. Let's go ahead and read um, verses 10 through 12. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So Peter's continuing to talk about what it looks like to be a righteous people in a pagan society, what it's, what it's like to reflect God's goodness to the people around you. And what he's doing is he's quoting Psalm 34 to kind of expand upon this idea. And as you guys are reading through the New Testament, this happens a lot where the writers will quote sometimes extra biblical texts, but sometimes they'll quote passages from the Old, Old Testament. And when you see that happening, it's good to look down at the footnotes and even to go back to those passages and read those passages because it can give you a deeper insight into what the writers are intending and can also help put you in their shoes a little bit and help you to understand where they're coming from. And so in the coming days, maybe later today or in the next couple of days, if you get a chance to reread this passage I'm covering this morning and then go back and read Psalm 34, um, it might help deepen your understanding of the point Peter's making here. That point being, being a righteous people in the midst of um, a pagan world or just being righteous in the midst of a hostile world. All right, let's look at verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. So what do we do? When, when we're persecuted, when we're experiencing suffering because of our faith, we respond with righteousness and goodness. As I mentioned before, scholars aren't totally sure what the experiences of these particular communities in Asia Minor were like. But as I mentioned, they were misunderstood, maybe mistrusted, and marginalized some. And so that, that might have been what Peter was addressing here. Some wonder if the Holy Spirit was preparing the church for the, the persecutions to come. Because Peter is going to be executed. On, um, well, tradition holds that Peter is executed a couple years later under the persecutions under um, the emperor Nero. And so maybe God is doing both. Maybe he's addressing the sufferings of the people in Asia Minor at that time, but he's preparing the church for future persecutions. I think it's hard for us as American Christians to understand this experience of being marginalized and persecuted um, for, for our faith, especially, um, especially white evangelicalism. I think it can be hard for us to understand. 
but when I think about it, I know that there's persecutions all around the world. When I think of um, other countries where Christians aren't accepted and are mistreated because of their faith. And when I thought about it, um, countries came to mind pretty quickly, like Pakistan, for instance, or China. And I, as I researched this a little bit more this week, um, I kept reading articles about Christian communities in Iraq and Syria when ISIS would invade. They would invade and either um, severely mistreat the Christian communities in Iraq and Syria, or those people were displaced. They saw the danger coming their way, and either they, were, they, they chose to flee or they were forced out and became displaced peoples. This was a, particularly the case in the city of Mosul, Iraq. Tens of thousands of Christians fled as ISIS invaded. In fact, there's a city in northern Iraq called Erbil. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It's in Kurdistan. And the Kurds were, are an ethnic minority in Iraq. They're a majority in that region. And they would fight against ISIS and create these safe havens. And so these displaced Christians from Mosul, Iraq, would go to Erbil. And there's like 120,000 of them there. And the Christian church in that area, they, they welcomed these people, and they provided housing and food and education as much as they could. And as I looked more, as I read more about it, I encountered this particular story of this girl named Miriam, this 10-year-old girl, and she's interviewed by a children's program, and the interviewer asks her about, what is it like to be forced from your home because of your faith? How's that affected your faith? And what, how do you feel and think about the people who did this to you? And her, what she has to say is really beautiful and powerful. And actually, what she, I think what she's doing in this interview is she's demonstrating exactly what Peter is at calling us to um, in his letter in response to persecution and suffering. So let's watch this interview with Miriam, and let's think about what Peter's calling us, how Peter's calling us to respond to suffering ourselves. And I think it's a real powerful example for us. موجودين هنا في المخيم لقينا بنوته فوجئت ان هي بتقول ان هي بتفرج على ليش هيك واسمها مريم ازيك يا مريم زينه انت كيفك انا زي الفل انت بتفرج على ليش هيك فعلا ايوه حبي سات 7 كيدز ايه انت فين بلدك جاي من قراقوش برضو ايوه من قراقوش انا طيب انت عندك 10 سنين مش كده ايوه طيب قولي لي انت بقالك قد ايه هنا في المخيم اربع اشهر ايه اكتر حاجه انت حاسه ان هي كنت بتحبيها في قراكوش مش موجودة هنا دلوقتي في المخيم كان عندنا بيت وكنا متونسين بس يعني هنا ما متونسين بس الحمد لله يعني الله سترنا قصدك ايه يعني ايه الله سترنا يعني الله حب حبنا و... وما قبل يعني يقتلونا داعش طيب انت حاسة قد ايه ربنا بيحبك صح ايوه ربنا بيحبنا كلنا مو مو بس انا كل الناس يحبوهم الله وانت شايفه ان ربنا كمان بيحب الناس اللي ممكن تبقى اذتك وزعلتك ولا لا يحبوهم بس ما يحب الشيطان طب انت شايفه انت حاسه باي ناحيه الناس اللي ممكن تبقى خرجتك من البيت وتعبتك ما راح اسويهم ولا شيء بس يعني اقول 
يسامحهم وانت تقدري تسامحيهم كمان ايوه بس دي حاجه صعبه قوي ولا حاجه سهله ان انا اعرف اسامح الناس اللي تعبتني يا مريم ما راح اقتلهم يعني ليه اقتلهم بس بس زعلانه ليه طلعوني من بيتنا طلعونا من بيتنا طيب آه آه انت كنت بتحبي المدرسه في كراكوش صح ايوه وكنت اولى دايما كان عندك اصحاب كمان في المدرسه ايوه موجودين هنا معاكي ولا ما فيش ولا حد فيهم هنا اكو بس ما بس ما اعرف وينهم طيب لو يمكن يكونوا هم دلوقتي بيتفرجوا على التلفزيون بيشوفوا ست سيفن كيدز تحبي تقولي لهم حاجه كان عندي صديقه واذا هوني كان عندي صديقه اسمها ساندرا وكنا انا وهي كل اليوم مع بعضنا وكل المدرسه مع بعضنا مع بعضنا مع انه كنا بعيدين بيوتنا مع من من بعض بس كنا نحب بعضنا كثير يعني اذا هي غلطت علي وانا غلطت عليها نسامح بعضنا ومرات كنا نلعب ونغلط على بعض بعض بس نسامح بعضنا وكنا نحب بعضنا بس هسه اريد اشوفها شوف بس انت مش عارفه هي فين خالص صح ما لا ما اعرف وينها طيب هي لو ساندرا بتفرج علينا دلوقتي اكيد هي كمان بعتلك سلامات و... واكيد هي كمان بتحبك يا مريم فيني كثير وانا حتى احبها ويا ريت اشوفها يوم اكيد ونفسي كمان احنا نبقى معاكي في اليوم ده علوه يعني ايه يعني علوه ارجع أه نرجع على بيوتنا هي ترجع على بيتها ونشوف بعضنا وترجعوا كمان في بيت احلى من البيت الاولاني كيف الله نحن كيف الله هو اللي يعرف طيب انت مش بيجي لك وقت كده تبقي زعلانه بتحسي ان يسوع سابك مثلا لا مرات يعني ابكي على البيت مالتنا ابكي على قرقوش بس ما ازعل انه الله يعني سابنا من قرقوش يعني رحنا من قرقوش اشكره لانه سترنا وجابنا لنا حتى اذا متبهدلين هنا بس الحمد لله الله سترنا انت علمتيني حاجات كتير قوي شكرا و... وانت حتى علمتني علمتك ايه انا و... علمتني يعني ما علمتني يعني حس... حسيت بمشاعري حسيت بمشاعري انا كان عندي مشاعر وأريد يعني يعرفون الناس إيش هي مشاعر هذول الأطفال اللي اللي هنا وأنت عارفة إن يسوع مش هيسيبك أبداً صح؟ ما راح يسيبنا إذا مؤمنة وثابتة بينه ما راح يسيبني طيب قولي لي Isn't her faith inspiring? The way she feels about God and the, the, her friends and family And even the way she feels about the people who persecuted her, who are the reason why she's had to flee her home and live in a camp. This is what Peter's talking about. She's, and, um, she's just demonstrating the points Peter's making. In response to suffering and persecution, we respond with goodness and faith and forgiveness and love. Not just for our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also for those who have hurt us and persecuted us. That's our calling, and that's what Peter's describing here. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. 
But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope you have. Now, growing up, um, when people would reference this verse, I think in Western American Christianity, a lot of times what they're thinking of is they're thinking apologetics, which means defense of the faith, which for us oftentimes what comes to mind is philosophical, scientific, intellectual reasons for why Christianity is either true or why it's reasonable to believe what we believe. But as I've looked in, digged into this, dug into this passage, um, I don't think that's actually what Peter's talking about. I think what Peter's talking about is what Miriam showed us, that the hope we have in Christ is Christ's death and resurrection and his defeat and victory of sin because of that. And she might not have that language that I have, but it was clear, wasn't it? Her faith and the spirit in her. And I hope that's an example to us. I think that's what Peter's talking about. Can we be ready when people, just like the interview asked, interviewer asked her, what, where's your hope? What do you think of this? And she was so ready to talk about her hope and her faith. Can we be ready to share our hope and our faith in Christ when people ask us? And what we talk about is Christ's victory over sin. In fact, Peter goes in and talks about that specifically in verse 8. Let's, let's jump to verse, I mean, verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to, to bring us to God, to reconcile us to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. Christ has reconciled us to God through his death and resurrection. He's victorious over sin. That is our hope, Peter says. Then after that, he goes into some confusing verses. And those of you guys who um, are familiar with this passage, or you read it this week, or you're a small group and you've already discussed it some, you might be, this might be why you're here or what you're most looking forward to is, what is Peter talking about in verses 19 and 20? So let's go ahead and, and dig into it. Let's, um, let's read verses 18 through 20 here. We're going to reread 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through, wa- through the water. What? Peter, what are you talking about? You're being extremely confusing right now. The Catholics in here are thinking I'm being disrespectful to Peter, but I honestly don't think Peter cares what I'm saying this morning because he's in the presence of God. I don't think he's worried about it. Um, so I read multiple commentaries in preparation um, to, try, to try to understand it myself. A famous theologian, Miller Erickson, says that there's probably 180 different theories about what Peter's talking about in these, version, or in these verses. I don't think there's 180 different theories. It's probably, there's probably a lot of combinations of different points. 
Um, but instead of going through all 180, I think eventually you guys would walk out on me. Um, I'm going to focus on the three most popular or widely held views. But in order to begin to understand what Peter's talking about, let's go back to Genesis and refresh ourselves. What happens in the context of the story of Noah and the flood? So we can know from like scripture what, what Peter's talking about. So if you remember in Genesis, there's creation, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. And then in um, Genesis 5, there's a genealogy from Adam to Noah. And then we're going to pick up in Genesis on chapter 6, the first few verses there. Let's read that. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were here on earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and they had children by them. They were heroes of old, men of renown. What? There's some crazy stuff in the Bible, isn't there? Um, when I read this, I think of Tolkien. If any of you guys are nerdy like me and you've read the Silmarillion, um, that's what I think of when I read this because I think Tolkien was inspired by Scripture when he wrote those things. Let's keep going. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then after this, it goes into the story of Noah and the ark and the flood and God's wrath on humankind. Okay, so verses 19 and 20 in 1 Peter 3. It says, after being made alive, Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. What is he talking about? So the three main perspectives, the first one I'm going to talk about is the descent into hell perspective, which um, I'm getting from Scott McKnight, who is a a scholar I enjoy. Um, In this perspective, he didn't come up with this, actually. This is a very historical perspective that he's just relaying to us. Um, In this view... The imprisoned spirits in this passage refers to either the sons of God that are mentioned in Genesis 6 or to the spirits of those who died before the flood. And the prison refers to the underworld, or as we might think of it, hell. So according to this view, Jesus, after his death, descended into hell and preached the gospel either to the, um, to the, son, the, the fallen angels, the sons of God, mentioned in Genesis 6, to the people who died before the flood. Or some use this, this view, this perspective, to address the concern. Sometimes people wonder, what about the people in the Old Testament who didn't know explicitly about Jesus and maybe didn't have the understanding of the gospel that we have now? What does salvation look like for them? And some people say, well, Jesus descended into hell and, um, or purgatory and preached the gospel to them so they could have an opportunity for salvation. So that's the descent into hell view. Some take issue with this perspective because um, they say, well, there can't be salvation after death. Um, the way we live our lives is so important 
that people need to be reconciled to God before death in order to be saved. And so another view developed historically, which I'm going to um, give a very literal name and call Jesus P- preached through Noah perspective, which you can probably figure out by the name, um, the direction I'm going to go here. So the imprisoned spirits in Genesis 6 in this perspective are Noah's contemporaries. In this view, Jesus preached to Noah's contemporaries through Noah. So Noah preached the gospel to his contemporaries. So that's the Jesus preached through Noah perspective. Not good at naming things. Um, the third view is the Enoch perspective. And this one's kind of crazy. Um, I had to read it over and over again and took me some time to like digest it in a way that I could explain it to you guys. Um, but in order to understand this one, we're going to go back to Genesis 5, 21 through 24. So if you remember, I said there's a genealogy from Adam to Noah. And if you've ever read this genealogy, you're reading it, and in the middle of the genealogy, there's some stories, and perhaps the one that stands out the most is the story of Enoch. Let's go ahead and read that passage. Verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah, who's another kind of famous um, person from this passage. He is um, the, the, per, um, the person who lived the longest in, in Scripture. Verse 22, after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God for 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. And when people are reading this genealogy, they read this and they're like, wait a second, this guy didn't die. God took him up into heaven without dying. That doesn't happen very often. This is interesting. And so over the centuries, the ancient Hebrews developed traditions about Enoch and sometimes wrote these traditions down into texts. And these traditions about Enoch and these texts about Enoch became prevalent and important in the Jewish culture. And so the stories I'm going to share with you this morning might seem weird to us, but um, scholars say that they would have been pretty familiar to um, to the people that Peter's writing his letter to, to the ancient Jews and the early Christians. So this book of Enoch, there's two books of Enoch, and um, Enoch wasn't discovered until the 1700s. So the people in Peter's day would have been familiar with it, but then it became lost to history for centuries. And then in the 1700s, we rediscover the book of Enoch. And it's become a really commonly held way of understanding this passage in 1 Peter 3, is, is 1 Enoch. It's an extra biblical text. So there's a lot of texts that um, the writers of the New Testament, the apostles would lean on, and they even reference in Scripture, but for various reasons, they weren't included in the canon of Scripture. So they're not Scripture, they're extra-biblical texts. And some, the different texts have varying degrees of, like, authority. So we're going to pick up in Enoch chapter 12, which says that when Enoch was taken up by God um, from the earth, he went to live with the watchers and the holy ones. And the watchers were the sons of God mentioned in Genesis 6-4. The children they had with the daughters of humans were the Nephilim. And evil spirits came from the Nephilim and taught people deeds of shame, injustice, and sin, and would continue to corrupt the earth until the day of great, con- this is a, in quotes, the day of great conclusion until the great age is consummated, until everything is concluded. 
So the watchers ask Enoch to intercede with God on behalf of themselves and their children. And so Enoch says, sure, I'll do that. And he goes to God and he intercedes with God on behalf of the watchers. And he comes back with this proclamation from God. You will not be able to ascend into heaven until all eternity, but you shall remain inside the earth imprisoned all the days of eternity. And God also proclaims that the watchers would see the destruction of their sons because their petitions weren't heard by God. These spirits that came from the bodies of the children of the watchers were the cause of human evil that led to the great flood during Noah's time. So when people started studying the book of Enoch, they saw in both Enoch and 1 Peter 3, um, they both involve spirits who receive a proclamation from God and are closely associated with the book of Noah. And so they wondered if this is what Peter was referencing there. And if this position is correct, then the spirits Christ preached to may have been the spirits that came from the bodies of the children of the watchers. And the day of the great conclusion would have been first announced by the flood, but it's actually the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Peter in this passage is declaring the victory of Christ over sin, both in the the world of humans as well as in the spirit world. So those are the three perspectives. The descent into hell perspective, um, Jesus preached through Noah perspective, and the Enoch perspective. Now, out of the three, I lean towards the Enoch one um, for multiple reasons. Out of the three commentaries I read, Wayne Grudem, um, the one written by Wayne Grudem, he believes in the Jesus preached through Noah perspective. And the other two commentators believed in the, the Enoch perspective, Karen Jobes and Scott McKnight. These are two scholars I tend to trust, um, but I also believe in the Enoch perspective for some other reasons. The descent into hell view is dependent on a perspective of hell that I understand as being developed over the centuries um, that are like influenced by um, Western culture and the Western church. And so um, this view of hell may or may not be in the scriptures, And so that's a concern I have about the um, descent of hell perspective. And for the the Jesus preached through Noah perspective, when I read that perspective and I read the passage, it just doesn't seem to fit very well. So I lean towards the Enoch perspective, but I just want to make it clear, we really don't know for sure what Peter's talking about here. Um, We do our best to interpret it. And as I mentioned, there's 180 different perspectives on it. If you want to investigate more, um, I recommend Karen Job's um, commentary on 1 Peter. And if you want to reach out to a staff member, we can either help you connect with that, find that commentary, or we can maybe help you investigate this further if you have more questions. Um, We also have a local seminary, and I reached out to one of the professors there, and I was going to give you an email address, but I didn't hear back from him. So maybe I'll get back to you if he gives me permission to pass on his email address. Okay, 19 through 20, hopefully you're coming away with some more clarity. I realize I might have brought up more questions than you had coming in, which is good. That's how we learn. That's a good thing, I hope. Um, Let's go on to another confusing verse. So let's see, how do we get some context here? Um, Verses 19 through 20, when Jesus was raised from the dead, um, he he preached to the... 
sorry, I'm trying to find my spot here. He went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And then verse 21, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not from the removal of dirt, not, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In this passage, it may seem like Peter's saying that baptism saves you, but he's not. Baptism is um, an important pra- ancient practice of Christians. Everyone who comes to faith in Christ should get baptized. But the act of baptism itself isn't what saves you. What Peter's saying here is what saves you is the pledge of a clear conscience before God. In other words, faith is what saves us. And then Peter wraps up the whole passage with the point of it all in verse 22. So in verse 21, he says um, that the pledge of a clear conscience towards God saves us. And then it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. And I think this is the, the end of the final point that Peter's making throughout this whole passage. This is the point of the passage. Our pledge of a clear conscience before God, our faith saves us because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus has victory over sin. And this is a point of hope for the people suffering under persecution that Peter's writing to. But it's our hope today as the church today is Christ's victory over sin through his death and resurrection. As Peter describes, because of this, angels, authorities, and powers are in submission to Christ. This is his victory. And this victory is the hope of the church, both in Peter's dead day and today and forever. This victory is our salvation and our hope as the people of God. Christ's victory over sin through his death and his resurrection. Let me close in prayer.